My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Hello everyone. Uh, after last week's guest, I had yet another very interesting talk with a Maastricht University staff member. Uh, this talk was with Catherine Lowe, and she is a lecturer on global health and international relations. So actually, for the first time, uh, we'll cover something that well directly matches with my studies. Um, she did her PhD on the securitization of HIV AIDS in China and India, and she did that at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, Catherine uh, elaborates on her PhD topic and uh, we compare her research to the current securitization process of COVID-19. So, I mean, that's very interesting to see. Um, and I could say a ton more about the conversation, but I think we should just dive right, to in, dive right into the episode and uh, enjoy. Hello, Catherine. Um, I'm very happy to have you on, on the show. Uh, Hello, can, you brief- <laughs> uh, can you briefly introduce yourself maybe and say a few words on what keeps you busy at the moment? Okay, um, thank you for inviting me um, to this interview. Uh, my name is Catherine Lowe. I currently a, a lecturer at University College Maastricht at Maastricht University. Um, um, in UCM, I'm teaching uh, Chinese international relations and foreign policy, and also China and India in global governance. Um, I started working at UCM in 2018, and before that, I uh, was working in two universities in Hong Kong. Oh, and by the way, um, I was born and uh, raised in Hong Kong. Um, so I also did my PhD in Hong Kong um, at University of Hong Kong. So after I graduated from um, Hong Kong U in 2002, and I immediately started teaching um, in City University of Hong Kong and then the Chinese University of Hong Kong before I came to Maastricht University. Um, so what I, um, and recently I'm really busy with uh, my research grant application and also the book writing. Um, regarding my research interest, I'm doing interdisciplinary research um, in international relations and global health with an Asian focus. Um, for the grant application, um, I apply a Dutch national grant uh, regarding COVID-19 and how we can understand people experience during COVID-19 uh, by using oral history. Um, and the other grant I apply uh, is a Japanese grant. Uh, it's about uh, antimicrobial resistance in China and Japan. I try to compare um, how Chinese and Japanese government um, manage uh, antimicrobial resistance at a global and also regional levels. Um, and for the book, um, I just finished uh, writing uh, two book chapters on COVID-19 and the role of um, WHO in Asia. And the case studies I use, uh, one chapter is about China and the other one is about Taiwan. That sounds like you're very busy at the moment. Um, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned that you're um, you're uh, you're studying, or at least you're busy with uh, global health right now with your new book. Um, is that also what you studied for your uh, PhD thesis, or uh, is it uh, in any way connected to it? 
Oh, yes. Uh, thank you for your question. Yes, actually, it's all related back to uh, my PhD life. Um, the topic of my PhD dissertation was about the securitization of HIV-AIDS um, in China and India. So basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a mix between international relations and global health. Fair enough. Um, maybe for the listeners, uh, what exactly does the securitization mean of, of uh, such diseases? Okay, um, so securitization theory is an international relation theory developed by Copenhagen School of Security Studies in around 1980s, and then they published a book uh, in 1998. Um, so securitization theory describes the process of an issue becomes a security issue. So in other words, the theory studies how political leaders frame an issue as a security issue. So in a sense, it's kind of how countries or, or political elites um, make a threat or make something a threat so that they can securitize it, right? Yes. And... When they frame something as a threat, then uh, the result would be you will see a huge budget reallocation to one issues to the securitized issues. Yeah, that sounds very uh, familiar in, in these times, right? Because yes. I think that is essentially what a lot of countries are doing now with uh, with COVID. They're they're framing it as a security issue. Well, which yeah. I mean is is fair enough, which is a fair point. And this increases the the, the budget. Uh, yeah. So is there like a large parallel? Like, how do you look upon uh, the the uh, COVID securitization right now uh, in comparison to the HIV uh, and or an AIDS uh, securitization? Mm -hmm. Well, um, then I have to go back a bit to my PhD dissertation I wrote. Yeah. Um, so I uh, apply securitization theory to look into how the Chinese and the Indian government frame HIV AIDS as a security threat and the corresponding issues to mitigate uh, HIV AIDS in their respective countries. Uh, yeah. What I was doing is more like a longitudinal study I try to study uh, back from the first uh, case uh, appear in China, India in 1980s and how the framing, uh, how the framing of HIV has changed across time from 1980s to 2010. And um, in my dissertation, I argue that both Chinese and Indian government securitized HIV um, in 2004 so before that, HIV was not viewed as a security issue, and both governments are very reluctant to address um, HIV because of stigma, stigmas and taboos. Uh, so, so it's a kind of uh, so it's a kind of a taboo uh, disease. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. So and do you think it's like from COVID? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's very different. I agree. Do you think there is like a, a parallel with um, India and China um, securitizing HIV um, in 2004 and the SARS outbreak of 2003, if I recall it uh, correctly? Yeah. Yes, you're right. Um, so um, you could say uh, SARS outbreak is a trickling point of why China securitized HIVs uh, because I mean, for India, um, 
there wasn't cases in India. So for for the case of India, SARS wasn't a wasn't trigger a point. Yeah. Trigger point uh, for securitizing HIVs. Uh, for both Chinese and Indian government, I would say um, the global um, securitization process of HIVs since two thousand is a trigger point. So, yeah, uh, so we if we go back to uh, what happened in uh, the year two thousand was that uh, the UN Security Council um, they first framed HIVs as a global security threat, and mm-hmm. with that global uh, securitization framing, uh, and we could see lots of um, global level funding allocated to HIVAs, for example, the establishment of Global Fund for HIVAs, TB and Malaria was established in 2002. Um, so with that global fund, um, countries affected by HIVAs could apply for this global funding. And with that oh, funding, like both China and India apply for that funding. And with that funding, they could, uh, they could uh, manage HIVAs by not using their own money. (laughs) (laughs) So they were kind of waiting for for other people to give them their money. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean, as I said, uh, because HIVs was uh, a a disease with um, stigma and taboo attached to it. Um, So, and HIVs is not like the most uh, infectious. Yeah, Yeah. like most important or it's not like... um, it's not like life threatening to to like the the majority of the population, right? Like, yes, yes, and they also have the mentality that for both for those people who got HIVs, they got it because they are they it's are their bad. own fault. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not only because they are unlucky, but also they have some uh, socially unacceptable behaviors. For example, I see. drug use, um, sex, uh, like sex uh, unprotected workers. sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see, I see. So, um, do you think the um, if you're, I mean, you read your whole uh, dissertation about the, the securitization of HIV. Um, do you see like any parallels, or how is the the securitization of HIV different from the securitization of uh, COVID? Because I think um, a lot of Asian countries, especially China and Taiwan, are actually mm-hmm. doing pretty well, right, with their securitization of uh, of COVID, and which. Yeah eventually results in, in um, less cases on the long term? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, again, it's the nature of the disease. For HIVs, it's appeared since 1980s, and countries wait so long um, to securitize HIVs. And again, HIVs is not uh, a disease that uh, if you get it, you will die uh, the next day. Yeah, in like two, yeah, two weeks yeah. or something. Yeah. And no, uh, a year. Yeah, no, that's what I yeah. mean. Like, it's not like you die in two weeks. <laughs> true, <laughs> true. And also, um, because of the medical advancement, um, if I got HIVs now, and if I uh, go on medication, then actually I mm-hmm. can live with the virus forever. Yeah, yeah that's right. By HIVs, but by something else. By um, something else, yeah. Yeah, but for COVID, um, because of the disease is so new um, and so less research on it, and there is no such promising uh, treatment vaccine protocol. or, yeah. Yeah, and no vaccine, of course. And that's make countries 
and also people really scared because of this uncertainty, and they could securitize COVID nineteen like faster than HIV AIDS. Yeah, it, was it because like the the government itself thought it was more important, or it's because people are actually more scared and therefore they accept um well let's say total lockdowns or what have mm. you. Yeah, I was I I would say both because COVID nineteen you you could see the, the how they damage uh, the economy. Yeah. Yeah, and with with that consideration, with the economic consideration, um. I mean, government, um, they feel like they have to do something to deal with it. But then, ironically, when they have these lockdown measures, they also damage the economy. But if you yeah. have to wait the short-term and long-term effect, then they would rather um, they would rather do it now. Rather give up some liberty now and mm. then in, in, so that in long-term, the, eco- the economy will strive again. Yeah, I think okay. that's, a, that's, that's the difference, right, between Europe and well, maybe... Asia China. as a whole, uh, mm-hmm. China, yes, the difference between uh, Europe and uh, China in the sense that European people seem to mm-hmm. be less inclined to give up li- their liberties for yeah. long-term effects. Yeah, yeah, true, true. I, I, I could also uh, observe the fact that, um, I, I mean, when when COVID um, struck China and with the lockdown measures, um, if, I mean, like, I have family and friends in China, in Hong Kong, and when they talk about the lockdown, um, they would say, uh, when the government asks us to stay at home, then we should stay at home. Um, this is our responsibility. This is the way how we could help the government yeah. to, uh, to, to, to dealt with COVID-19. While here, uh, people are still arguing whether we should wear masks, whether, <laughs> whether mask is effective or not, uh, why we should stay at home. And you can see all this video, especially in Italy. I saw one video. Uh, I, I don't know, like the, the mayor, he went out and yelled at these people walking with the dog and uh, like jogging. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people also make up so many excuses I have to do some haircuts. I I have to do some exercises. And then that Italian mayor, he said, "What what's on earth? You, you suddenly love doing sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, that's true. Do you think that's like a cultural difference between um, Asia and Europe? Or it's also like from on, on government level so that maybe China has more, well, um, more devices or more um, ways to control or to, to keep their mm. people inside? Mm. I think pol- as a political scientist, I would say um, the political system matters a lot. Yeah, China yeah, yeah, is I agree. Not a, it's not a democratic country, although they claim they are, but they have, but this really different from the universal, universal definition of democracy, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, so for and also uh, for, for 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 like, I mean, in an authoritarian system, people are uh, I I can't say they're used to it, but um, this is the way. Yeah, to 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 deal stuff, right? Yeah, they know, so for them, yeah. it's not something for the for for, for unusual yeah. Chinese people. It's, yeah, it's not something unusual, and and also the idea of human rights is different from, in China. It's different from human rights in in Europe. So in China, yeah. human rights is not about individual liberty and freedom. 
it's more about a societal um, uh, security. Yeah. So your individual liberty cannot infringe the societal benefit. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very big difference indeed. But um, I think for a lot of people, like they kind of knew it or it was, you know, it was there, the difference between um, societal uh, um, rights, that like the importance of society and the uh, importance of uh, uh, individuals in Europe instead. But yeah. I think now with the COVID crisis, like it really becomes like visible because yeah. now you can see that, I mean, China then went in total lockdown and people were actually okay with it. But now in the long term, they're kind of, picking their fruits from it because I thought I saw the last um, uh, economic figures right from the third quarter. And yeah. I think China is the only country that uh, the only country that's actually has a positive uh, uh, growth. growth in their GDP. Yeah. In their G uh, GDP. Um, yeah, yeah. True. Because China is the first country um, affected by COVID. And yeah. so naturally they are also the first country to, uh, to, get uh, our, to recover. To yeah. recover. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think that was very interesting. Um, and we talked about the the COVID, but maybe um, let's hope for a vaccine and uh, <laughs> uh, go into your PhD a bit more um, yeah, if you're fine sure. with it. Yeah, um, sure. So you mentioned that you worked, you um, studied and worked in in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. um, and now you're in the Netherlands for two years. Um, yeah. How would you say that um, is academia different in in Asia or China uh, compared to the Netherlands? Oh, wow, this is a very good question. Um, hey, um, so in Hong Kong, um, although um, like in Asia, but actually at Hong Kong U, we have lots of foreigners. Um, expats, as, right? Yeah, expats yeah. as professors in university. And also because the university I went to, um, the University of Hong Kong was established by the British colonial government. Uh, fair um, enough. Yeah, so it's very westernized. Um, and, but, also, but also we have uh, Chinese uh, professors working in, at Hong Kong U. Uh, but I was super lucky. Um, like all my supervisors, I got three supervisors in my life. I mean, when I was doing my postgraduate studies. PhD, yeah. Yeah, PhD, MPhil and PhD. And only one um, was a Chinese. And the two, one is Australian and one is British. And I could I could say a lot of the difference. Um, um, so for... Um, like my so-called Western professors, they're more hands-off. Um, they won't call yeah. you every day. They won't check you whether you're working or not. And I mean, if I work um, till 5 p.m. on Friday, they will lock on my door saying, hey, Catherine, you should leave your office. What's on earth? You're doing <laughs> You, you, you're working here it's friday come on um <laughs> yeah, yeah get some drinks like <laughs> yeah yeah and but but, but for, for for my uh classmates uh, like uh who has a chinese supervisor they have a bit of hard time um because i mean i share office with these people and yeah and like i i received so many phone calls during the lunch time their supervisors were <laughs> was like calling them and checking whether they are working. And I, I told them, hey, it's lunchtime. Yeah, so it's weird. And also for Chinese supervisor, um, um, sometimes because they treat you as their mentees, so they, have, they are more hierarchical in a way they thought you need to do anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, they want you to do. For example, I have 
friend of mine, um, her supervisor called her um, to return books for him to the library. Um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that's also, a bit extreme, right? That's not really what you want to do when you're uh, when yeah. you're doing your PhD. Uh. Yes, <laughs> and even even I have uh, a friend of mine telling me um, a very extreme case that. Um, they were forced to attend a personal mini concert performed by the wife of their supervisor. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> yeah. And they yeah. have to show they really love the music and they really want to get the signature from the wife of the professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bit extreme, I indeed. <laughs> yes. But but then again, would you say like the um Having like Chinese in Chinese universities, then um, uh, compared to like uh, Western universities in Hong Kong, maybe that the Chinese are less efficient, or are they also still are there also like good things about their hierarchical structure? And uh, because I think like yes, I get your point completely, and I would not like to like mm -hmm. have such supervisors, but I think <laughs> for for them it works kind of right because most people just accept it. Yes, and. And, and actually, um, it's more like father-son relationships um, mm -hmm. for, for the PhD supervision. So in that sense, although the su supervisor will ask you to do laundry, uh, to return books from the library. <laughs> yeah, true. Because <laughs> father-son relations, it's like that. Yeah, but, it's like, yeah, I get but, it. But um, they will take care of you more than the Western professors, I would say. They were concerned yeah, okay. about your future path and they even plan ahead for you. Yeah. So it's kind of a two, uh, two-sided sword in a sense, like two-edged two sword that you, on the one hand, it's good, but on the, on the other hand, it also infringes with, I mean, with our Western uh, standards of, of uh, liberties, right? Yeah, true. And um, yeah, and for the Western professors, um, they are more hands-off, um, but um, they give you so much room to develop. But sometimes uh, they not not everyone will really uh, plan ahead for you. Yeah. Or, so that's like the difference because they believe um, um, once it's you your got own your responsibility. PhD, yes, yeah. uh, once you got your PhD, you kind of become like an adult. So you have your freedom and you know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's so that's like the then one of the main differences between Western academic uh, academia and and uh, Asian, you would say. Yeah, I would uh, say so. I, I would say so. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we discussed before, right? The the individual um, um, Liberty. responsibilities, mm -hmm. yeah, individual liberties or individual responsibilities, and like the the community responsibilities, and mm. that this is like visible both in COVID but also in academia, right? Yeah, uh, true. It's like yeah, a mirror. That, yeah, yeah. Um, in China, like, um, did you also do some uh, publications there um, in uh, in Hong Kong? And how important are, are uh, publications um, in in Asia and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Western um, academia? You would say. Okay, um, this is a very good question. Um, for um, I mean, Asia, Asian universities in general. Uh, especially for these big countries like China, Japan, um, South Korea, um, or may maybe not Taiwan, um, but like for these so-called important um, countries in Asia, they yeah. are very um, they are very uh, research driven. 
Um, so in these so-called research-led universities, um, as an academia, y- your primary responsibility is not to teach your students, but mm-hmm. to uh, get more uh, information, content, and, like not yeah. ex- external f- uh, grants. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Publications um, have more interviews on TV, um, on radio. Yeah, so it's very different. I think in Europe, I, I when you talk about like Western universities, I would say you can. There are two types of Western universities, so to speak. I think in the UK and and the US, these universities are very also very research driven. Yeah. Uh, because this is the way how they can uh, uh, upgrade the ranking. Yeah, it's like more for them. They are more occupied with like um, mm. exporting their brand, branding image, and exporting their ideas and stuff, and becoming more famous, right? Yeah, uh, and fame and the fame will also attract external funding. Yeah, for the university. I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's what they are looking for. And for I think I mean I I I, I as you said I mean I work in Europe um, two years already, and I could really tell the difference. Um, like here, um, the university in general are more student focused. Um, so the teacher, the professor here, are really teach students instead of um, doing research, uh, uh, publish yeah. uh, ten books a year. Um, I could in I could remember when I was, when I uh, worked at City University of Hong Kong. Actually, we have a quarter. We have to. That, that we have to meet every year. So in For, order to really, yeah, in order to get a promotion or in order to stay on, you need to score thirty points. Mm-hmm. So how they make that thirty points? Um, if you publish a book, then you got thirty points. <laughs> and if you publish a journal article, uh, not 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 a not a should be a peer peer reviewed, one. yeah, yeah. yeah. You got ten points each, so you have to publish so, three. So there's way more pressure on on uh, yeah. uh, on performing in a way, right? Yes, uh, more pressure on uh, publications, research. Do you output. think? Th- do you think that this difference is kind of maybe caused that maybe in European uh, universities, like they're already on like a certain level where um, there's this kind of, I mean, there's a, there is enough uh, external funding and they, mm-hmm. the governments prioritize like educating their, their, uh, their citizens maybe. And in maybe these Asian countries, it's they're, maybe they're more developing or they still mm-hmm. need more uh, external funding and therefore they uh, try to, um, focus more on research or is that a wrong assumption um this is a very good question i'm i'm st- i'm also thinking why um uh, european universities uh they care less about their ranking because you know like uh, universities are crazy with these global ranking and you know different yeah. ranking have different uh indicators so if you just take out uh research publication as an indicator, then you don't have to push, um, uh, 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 you don't have to push the uh, professors to, to publish articles because if yeah. it's not part of the uh, assessment, right? Of the criteria. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 
Sam, I really don't know like why European <laughs> University are they are very relaxed about it. I yeah, I yeah. think it's a good yeah, it's a good question. I, uh, I'll dig into it after. Um, yeah. But what what does what does like uh, what does your preference has like what is your preference more teaching or more doing research? <laughs> For me, um, actually, I like both, and I mean that's like the reason why I. Um, work as an academia um, right after I finished my PhD I don't have a second thought that um, yeah I would I I don't like teaching or I don't like research I like both yeah both so I want them. to do I want to be I want to do both so I was I would tell others um, I want to be a teacher scholar or scholar teacher depends yeah. on which one sh I should prioritize but this is what I want to do. I want to do both because I'm thinking um, um, like my research um, inform my teaching and my teaching also guide my research. Yeah, I think that's very, that's, I mean, that's how I look at it too, right? Like, I mean, mm. as even though like your students might not know as much as you do, but I think you'll, by reading their papers or reading, like having discussions with them, I think you still learn from students, I suppose. Yes, and uh, to be honest, I still remember the paper you submitted to me uh, regarding the um, uh, whether China is a responsible stakeholder. Yeah. Yeah, I still remember. Uh, I'm serious. So, I I mean that this is something that I really want to read from students uh, that really inspire me to think of the next research topic. Yeah, I mean, I was always like when I write papers, like I always think, okay, like for for teachers or professors, it's kind of an easy way of getting research topics, right? Because they can just <laughs> filter filter between the papers, and they see like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's let's research that deeper, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why what, what, not? Uh, we just learn from each other. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah. Um, I think um, for a final question. Um, uh, because we didn't really talk that much about your PhD, but for a final question, um, uh -huh. is there like this one memory of your PhD adventure of during your PhD that you cherish the most? Um, yeah, yes, I do, I do. I have lots of um, moments that I really cherished and I missed that moment. But I think I would say uh, my field work in India was the experience that I cherished the most because it was a real adventure. Um, so what happened? Um, because uh, as I mentioned, um, I was researching on China and India. I also did field work um, in both countries. Uh, so so you were kind of applying. You were kind of applying your your uh, your study to to these countries, then, right? Yes, yes. So I tried to talk to um, medical officers, uh, practitioners, government officials, NGO, civil society groups uh, on. Um, how they perceive HIVs and how they perceive the policy implemented by both Chinese and Indian governments. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. why I, I, I went on field work um, in China and also India. So for China, it's not, it's not something very um, um, surprising. Common? Because it's com uh, no, no, because um, oh, okay. <laughs> of, my, of my background. So yeah. I mean, I'm used to travel to China. So for, for China, it's not something really special. But um, for India, I got a... Uh, a really um, exciting experience and I could share. Um, so in India, I plan to do some interviews in Manipur. Manipur is a Northeast Indian state, 
bordering uh, China and Myanmar. Um, so mm-hmm. I plan ahead some interviews. I contact people there already. I booked the tickets and I really got on a flight. When I arrived at the airport in Manipur, um, the officers at the airport realized that I'm Chinese. So they escorted <laughs> me to take the next plane to leave Manipur. And the reason why they won't allow Chinese to enter Manipur, because um, there has been border disputes between China and India, what you um, yeah. watch um, in media this day, <clears throat> in the surrounding area of Manipur. And is Manipur then in the, in the area of Kashmir or is it uh, somewhere else? Um, no, it's not in the northeast, it's in the northeast. Ah, okay, northeast, fair enough. That's not yeah, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, so the Indian government has banned the entry of Chinese nations. Uh, but, you know, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and we Hong Kong people are using a different passport that, than people in, China, uh, in mainland China. So in mainland China, um, their passport is... Um, red in color and for us we got a blue color passport um yeah. a hong kong sar passport and i show them my passport i'm i'm defending myself i'm not chinese <laughs> 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 yeah. officially speaking um but then they argue with me you know like indian also love to argue a lot and and, <laughs> and yes and they said oh your passport was written as hong kong special administrative region People's Republic of China. Of China. Yeah. yeah. So the word China is there on the passport. Therefore, mine was a Chinese passport. So okay. they kicked you out? or? <laughs> yes, they kicked me out, um, literally. And I went back to New Delhi because I, w- I, was, I was stationed in New Delhi and I did field work uh, to, uh, in different states in India. So I went back mm-hmm. to New Delhi, uh, so frustrated. So frustrating. And then a week later, um, the daughter of an Indian parliament member. Um, so I met her when I interviewed her father in New Delhi. Um, so the daughter of that Indian parliament member, uh, she texted me on Facebook asking me um, uh, how was my trip in Manipur. And I told her uh, what went wrong. Um, and she told me uh, she could ask her father for help. So um, at the end, I kind of got like an approval uh, from... By the parliament member? <laughs> yes, by the parliament <laughs> member to reach Manipur, but not by, um, not wide air this time. Uh, I took a 24-hour bus trip. And, you know, um, like when you travel by bus there is no border control or there is less border control. Although mm-hmm. there are border controls, um, but these guys like saw me and they thought I'm Indian as well. Um, <laughs> because I dress, <laughs> I, I dress like them. I try to. <laughs> and, and, the, and the thing is, because for, for people in Northeast part of India, as I said, because it's bordering China and actually yeah. they look exactly the same as then uh, of chinese people and they really and then they also claim that their ancestors are were those who built great the great war in china 
Yeah, so I, I just see, pretend I to be one of the local people. Um, I went through the, the border control uh, without any issues. I shut my mouth because I can't say an <laughs> Indian word. And, yeah. Yeah, and I arrived in Manipur. I stayed there for five days, um, finished all the interviews, and safely back to New Delhi and then back to Hong Kong. <laughs> That's an interesting story. Are you sneaking into like India? <laughs> and yes, I was sneaking. I was a bit like a smart girl myself yeah. to India. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully the Indian border patrol will will not listen to this podcast. Otherwise, you'll like get get a backlash from it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a very nice story, and I think that's a good moment to to uh, end the episode. Um, Catherine, mm-hmm. so thank you so much for the interesting uh, talk about uh, the COVID and your your PhD topic. Um, and um, well, yeah. thank you again. Thank you, thank you, Sam, for your time to like talk to me. Well, as Catherine proves, uh, academia does not limit itself to just reading and studying, but uh, it also involves human smuggling. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I'm just kidding, but uh, I think that the discussion was really interesting, and uh, Catherine proved to be a lovely guest with an interesting view on uh, the process of securitization uh, uh, and academic differences between Asia and Western Europe. I think it's very important to, to realize how governments and policymakers um, will kind of transfer their... their uh, their worries uh, to society the, uh, through the securitization process. And I think it's it's useful for everyone to, to have some knowledge about this. Um, similar to last week, uh, I'll leave Catherine's research gate uh, in the description and so that you guys can read a bit more about her research. And for now, uh, have a nice day and make sure to keep an eye out on new episodes. <laughs>